Welcome to the FedTech Innovator Podcast, bringing you the stories and journeys behind deep tech innovation and entrepreneurship. In each interview, we go behind the scenes with the entrepreneurs, scientists, and visionaries who are engineering the technologies of tomorrow, today. These journeys are unpredictable and full of learning, and whether you're an entrepreneur, researcher, or funder of innovation, our goal is to create a community where we can learn from each other as we all seek to change the world with technology. I'm Ben Solomon, and I'm the founder and managing partner of FedTech. Since 2015, we've been building a bridge between the R&D world and the venture world. Every year, we get to work with hundreds of companies and researchers who are changing the world through technology. In this podcast, we're going to share those stories with you from our friends and colleagues in deep tech. I'm coming to you from our headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, just across from the river from the nation's capital. All right. I'm very excited to be joined by Josh Green from Helios Climate Ventures today. Um, Josh uh, and I actually got, got introduced through our um, undergrad alumni network, which is always fun. And uh, Josh, yeah, we're, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about what you do and where you're calling in from today. Absolutely, Ben. Real pleasure to be here. So thanks for having me. Um, and definitely looking forward to the conversation. So I have the distinct pleasure of getting to work on um, combating the climate crisis. Uh, I do that by working with Helios Climate Ventures, which is a venture capital group that has been around since 2016 and is focused solely on technologies that seek to, you know, reduce, eliminate, drill down, use the adjective or verb you want here for um, greenhouse gases so we can be in a better position to, you know, hopefully have a functioning ecosystem planet uh, for our future generations. And before that, I was very lucky. I got to work with some friends from college, grown a biotech startup, which, you know, grew from a few people outside of a lab to 200 people that went public. And before that, a little bit of time in the federal government back in Canada, where I'm from originally, and some time in the nonprofit sector. So I've bounced around a lot, um, lots of different industries, lots of different things. Just uh, feel very lucky to kind of do all the different jobs I have. Yeah, and I'm glad you're working on obviously an important topic now. My my my, my children who are, are young, thank you. And my their 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 kids, uh, my grandchildren in the future will thank you for for doing the work you do. And tell us a little bit about the types of bets that Helios makes. What 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 are some portfolio companies that you've been excited about recently? Uh, just as examples. So I think I, I I can use the word bets as well, but I'm I'm trying you know as a somebody who works with other people, calculated you know rational, data-driven, informed decisions. Let's, 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 ref yeah, let's reframe that guy. I like the way you said it better. Yeah, no, but I hear you. Um, yeah, we, so Helios, we, um, look, we don't believe that there is any silver bullet for the climate crisis, right? What we need is silver buckshot. So as a result, we really look broadly, right? Um, many different solutions are gonna play a role in trying to eliminate or reduce greenhouse gases. That being said, we do have a specialty or focus area. Um, we invest primarily in energy storage. So what do we mean by that? We kind of look at that as batteries and the surrounding infrastructure systems around that, right? Kind of a cradle of the grave. So how can you get important critical resources or minerals out of the ground, such as lithium? How can you better manufacture batteries? New novel battery chemistry techniques, um, but then also what happens to the batteries after you use them, recycling, second life? So that really comprehensive energy ecosystem is where we spent a lot of time over the last five years. You know, while we have invested in solar, ag, other areas, about 90% of the investments we have made are in that energy storage space, partly because we have, you know, some technical skills on our team 
Um, one of our partners has his PhD in material sciences and has a battery background. Um, and also just because we spent a lot of time in this space, we feel we've come to understand some of the holes, some of the players, how they interact and I think we're better able to support our portfolio companies when we work in that area. Well, just even for, for kind of the lay folks like myself, um, give a little walkthrough of just all the ways that energy storage technology can be used theoretically. Like we all know about your Tesla's driving around, but like where, what, what else is this technology going to be useful for in kind of the future, you know, clean economy? Yeah, totally, Ben. Uh, you know, I think a really good way to step back um, and look at it, and part of the reason why we chose to focus on batteries is we see it as a foundational technology for two of the biggest drivers of emissions. In the United States, 52% of emissions come from power generation and transportation, right? Massive, massive amount of American emissions and globally also a big chunk, um, slightly less, but still also very high threshold for emissions. Now, as you noted, transportation, things like electric vehicles, it's become very apparent that EVs use batteries. And obviously if we have more electric vehicles versus internal combustion engine vehicles, we'll probably lower emissions. The other thing though is power generation, right? I think we've all either seen solar fields or wind turbines, or at least heard about them and have also kind of, I think we're all aware that the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. So these sources of green energy have an intermittency problem, which is used in the line, um, in the industry. And what that really means is what happens when they're not there? So obviously we need to be able to power our lives 24 seven. So what people are trying to do is develop batteries that can basically suck up excess energy when the sun is shining and maybe your solar panels are producing more energy than the grid needs. Can we find batteries to store those, right? Or build batteries to store those, store that energy that can then deliver it at night when the sun isn't shining, but we're still wanting to heat our houses or turn the lights on. So if you look at it from that way, you need batteries for clean power, clean energy generation to solve the intermittency problem. You need it for transportation. And then just generally in life, right? I think we look around ourselves and the internet of things is a phenomenon. Our phones, our laptops, our watches, all over it, everything's starting to have batteries in it. So there's a lot all over the world. We need better, better battery storage, more energy storage. So that's why we spend a lot of time focusing on that. Well, and they're, they're definitely, they're not easy companies to build. So when I, when I was kind of coming up as a, a young buck through the, um, I, I did my um, MBA at University of Maryland and they have a wonderful incubator program. And one of the companies there was developing when we were kind of getting started at FedTech, they were developing um, a couple doors down from us, like a, a thin, flexible battery that um, primarily trying to sell it to, to soldiers, um, sort of wearable batteries. And I just was struck by how um, infrastructure heavy it is to really manufacture, at least at that in their case, you know, at, at scale um, and be able to have, you know, production level facility. It just, it, it's, it's not the type of business that uh, looks to be easy to get cash flow positive quickly, like, like some things might be. So I'm curious, I mean, what's your perspective on that? And like, how do you, how do you build a great storage energy storage company um, without raising, you know, maybe gazillions of dollars? Uh, ben, you're spot on. It, um, you know, I think I talked with one friend once, and he went, "Look, I am long on batteries as an industry. I am short on any particular battery company." And the reason why I said that is, there's so much promise and potential and growth and needed demand in the field that it's obvious that there's going to be a lot of very successful companies, but it is very hard for all the reasons that you noted. 
first off, you know, you're developing hardware and hardware kind of is always difficult no matter what the field is because you got to build something and building is expensive and it's normally you're building something first of a kind and that's particularly expensive. And also you got to prove that it works in difficult conditions, right? If you want to build a conformable wearable battery, CWB for, you know, American soldiers, wow, you got to build something that is robust, is lightweight, can withstand, you know, bullets, um, or doesn't at least explode when it gets hit. Um, and you got to be able to make that cheap and reliable and repeatable. That's hard, right? This isn't, this isn't software you go, oops, well, there's a problem in the code, right? Well, let's, let's crush a couple of Red Bulls, have, you know, all nighter and we'll fix it and we'll be so, yeah. a little gnarly. Hard tech doesn't work like that. So you have to be very careful and methodical and it does take a lot of money and it does take a lot of time. Um, and I think, you know, this is one of the things that like Helios, we really look into this, you know, each time we come to partner with the company, it's like, we're entering into a relationship, you know, for a marriage, this is going to be a journey of many, many years. And we are committed to being there, helping, working with people to think about what, you know, where should they focus? Who can they talk to, to gain expertise? How are they going to manufacture at scale? Like these are all hard problems. And also how are we going to make sure you have the funds now and going forward, whether that's equity loans, you know, other, other facilities to get cash so you can operate. Um, I don't know if I answered your question or if I just round. Yeah. 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 You know, I agree with the general part. Yeah. And I think, I think what's, what seems to be special about your group is, is the commitment, you know, to the founders and to be uh helpful i mean what what kind of what, what does the relationship look like how do you how do you spend your week you know what percentage of your week is is kind of helping portfolio companies i mean any any thoughts on that well um you know definitely a large part uh you know i think is a large part of any week is spent having conversations talk with our teams talking with the founders um the past week has been particularly heavy um given what happened with svb so uh Spent a lot of time over the weekend talking, working with different founders to make sure that they're going to be supported, that we could just make sure they had payroll come March um, or could cover March payroll. So a lot more time this week than maybe a normal week, but you know, I'd say a good a good twenty five percent of my time is spent talking with um, talking with our founders, just making sure that they're supported, they have the information that they need. How can we be helpful? Because um, there's always running the company's hard. There's always some problem popping up somewhere. And, you know, having been on the other side of an operating company once before, I like to think I have, hopefully have some empathy in it. I don't have a solution. I can at least just be a friendly ear um, that you can rant or yell at. Um, and, you know, hope, at the very least, I hope that makes them feel better. Yeah, no, I'm sure it does. The, I was joking earlier, right? It's like, it's hard enough to be running a company and like, and making sure there's enough money in the bank, um, let alone to be worrying about if the money will stay in the bank <laughs> um, or evaporate. Yeah, so it, it's it's really something else. Um, and I think, I mean, what, it, it, it feels like it is in a general sense, a difficult time to be building a company that's relying on private capital. Um, obviously at FedTech, we get really excited about you know, non-dilutive government funding, you know, our, our kind of general model is let's, you know, have a company go and, and, you know, win government prizes, you know, prizes, prize challenges, go win SBIRs, those, those types of things. But I mean, what are you seeing? Like, is it, is it still possible? Obviously capital is more expensive, you know, things like uh, 
just just less liquidity in, in a general sense? What are, what are you noticing? Yeah, absolutely, right? I think um, not an earth-shattering revelation, um, but, you know, I think things are starting to slow down. Um, climate tech as a sector does seem to be more resilient than we've seen in other parts of the venture community, right? If you look at what's happened to the tech community or crypto, where you've had these massive reevaluations, right? Um, huge haircuts, huge down rounds on past, uh, past fundraising events. I don't think we're, we're seeing, we're not necessarily seeing that in climate change. I think what we're seeing uh, in climate tech is valuations aren't accelerating like they used to. Um, fundraising is taking longer, but there's been a massive flood of interest, right? A ton of capital has been dedicated to investing in this space. I think there's also a moral imperative that keeps a lot of people in this, right? I think, you know, people look and go like time is running out. And I think you've got a bunch of funders and a bunch of LPs who have brought together cash, you know, like, hey, we need to act, we can't delay. Um, and also governments are stepping in and supporting whether that's the IRA and what that means, whether it's the EU and their, you know, attempts to respond to that. With all those, with all that government funding, there is still capital out there that can be accessed. And because also governments, you know, like the Department of Energy in October announced over $2.8 billion to fund 20 different battery companies for their build out in the United States, right? You're having battery companies that can mix and match public dollars and private dollars. And I think that is useful and it works both ways. For public dollars, you know, the government can be, Hey, for every one dollar I'm putting in, I'm leveraging four dollars of private capital. That's a great ratio. And look, the four to one was made up. It could be any different number, but I think whenever yeah, you know, yeah. public dollars want to see our ROI and the private money, we go, oh, this is great. We know that there's government support there that can help so that companies don't have to access so much capital from the private markets, which maybe is having a little bit more difficulty now than back in 21 when the markets were being, you know, fair to say irrational or overly exuberant. What it, yeah, and you mentioned so IRA. So for for the non energy energy wonk, you know, Inflation Reduction Act. Um, what can you can you just uh, any primer, you know, just for the listeners that haven't, um, you know, really heard about that that legislation um, specifically? And I'm interested. I mean, to, to, it's, it it feels like there was a lot put into that bill that you know has been kind of building up over time. You know, that people wanted for a, a while. And I'm just curious. I mean, were were you happy? Were you excited with kind of the outcomes of of the Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah, um, Ben, I was thrilled when the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. Um, and the reason why is, you know, the why did I get involved in climate tech? It's because I truly am passionate about protecting the environment. And I was deeply worried that despite um, all the comments that have been made by the federal government, that no major climate bill was gonna get passed under the current administration. And that really made me nervous because the United States, you know, it's the second largest greenhouse gas emitter, uh, largest per capita is, you know, still the global leader. And climate change is a global phenomenon. And if the United States was not willing to lead, it is gonna be hard to see other countries following. So when the Inflation Reduction Act got passed, it did many things, right? It's an incredible piece of legislation. You know, it's gonna lower prescription drug prices. It's gonna make, you know, it allowed, you know, the government to negotiate um, for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, that's massive, that's huge, but what, and like that is, there's a lot of attention. But for the environment, 
it earmarked roughly $370 billion for various initiatives to combat climate change. And it covers so many different areas. It's tax credits for electric vehicles. It's, you know, tax credits for producing low cost, low carbon hydrogen, green hydrogen, if you want to use a color, wind, wind, solar, domestic production. It does so many different things to build a U.S. manufacturing base for the 21st century focused around a green economy. And it's going to just help, you know, really kickstart so many different initiatives and efforts that are going to help the United States hit its, you know, 2050 climate goals. It's an incredible piece of legislation. It's generational uh, impact. And, you know, we're still working out a lot of the finer points about how exactly everything's going to happen. That's going to take, you know, as often happens with Congress, a bill gets passed and you got to work out all the details. But as those are being hammered out, it's going to be an incredible, incredible piece of legislation to build green jobs in America, to position America to have leading technologies for the 21st century. Um, it's not only a climate bill, it's a jobs bill. It's a really impressive piece of le legislation. That's a hu huge achievement. Yeah, I was also extremely excited. And it's interesting, it's, it's kind of a boom t uh, time in a general sense. And, and obviously the world that FedTech lives in is commercializing R&D. So for us, you know, we've been kind of thinking there's a lot more R&D that's going to be happening between, you know, IRA and the CHIPS Act and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and we're actually even working on some accelerator concepts now that would be kind of, um, if you think, in, you know, years to the future when that, that research investment becomes kind of real in the form of, of a, a technology that could become a product and a product that could become a, a company, how do we sort of prepare now for that infrastructure, you know, to, to be ready to work with what's going to hopefully be a big volume of really disruptive new technologies that are, are kind of starting development now. So it's a good time to be in the business yeah, and, and in a general sense, um, and I'm sure you, you see it too. Um, I'm curious, uh, Josh, yeah, just so um, I forgot, uh, you, you mentioned you're from Saskatchewan. Uh, maybe just tell, tell a little bit of your story. Um, you know, just how, how do you go from Canada to obviously to Princeton and, and, and to where we are now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, uh, proud Canadian from uh, 20 miles outside of Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Uh, Saskatchewan is the province above Montana, North Dakota, so middle of the country. I grew up, um, so I grew up in the countryside, a uh, single mom, single child, nearest neighbor a mile away in a log cabin that was heated with a wood stove. It was rustic. Um, and uh, rustic, yeah. Yes, it was. And I was, you know, really fortunate. I went to a little country school that had 50 kids, you know, rode the school bus there, it took an hour to get there. Um, and I was very fortunate. And my province every year had one scholarship to go to a boarding school. You know, every year one student would get this scholarship for two years for a high school out on the west coast of Canada. And I was very fortunate I received that. And from there, I found out that there was this, you know, Shelby Davis, um, a Princeton alumni, who had really come to take a shine to this school and the network of schools that it belonged in, which are called the United World Colleges. Um, there are these really interesting schools, the UWCs, encourage anybody and everybody to look them up. They're amazing. Basically, if a student from UWC could get into Princeton, he would cover whatever their family couldn't afford to pay. In my case, single mom growing up on welfare, that meant everything. So I was like, wow, I never, I always wanted to go to college. I never knew how I was going to afford it. But as, if I could get into Princeton, 
I would get to go. So I worked really, really hard, um, put in a lot of late night studying, a lot of time and effort into putting my best foot forward. And was very fortunate I got selected. Um, it was a remarkable life-changing opportunity and had an incredible experience. The university took really good care of me, um, you know, taught me a lot, equipped me, um, gave me a lot of great friends. And then from there, I was very fortunate, got a scholarship to go over to the UK for boarding school for a few years, or go to the UK for grad school for two years. Um, what then, you, backing up a little, Josh, like, I, I don't think I realized that you were coming from that quite that much of a, you know, re remote, um, setting, you know, uh, uh, challenging, you know, uh, I mean, what, what, what did you kind of learn or do you have any reflection on kind of even, cause that sounds like that's, um, you overcame more, more than some, some people do in terms of going to, you know, just to go to college. Uh, what, what, what did you learn? I mean, about yourself kind of going through that and, and what do you look back on, uh, when you think about those early days? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, uh, yeah, was it the easiest background? No, it definitely was not financially, but I was incredibly fortunate. Um, my mom, uh, loved me deeply and dearly and was like an incredible role model, right? She, she put a lot of time and effort into just making sure that I knew I was loved, that I was cared for, promoting the value of education, you know, read a lot of books together. Um, and, you know, really as, you know, you know, let's say I got a 95 on a test. She teased me and asked what the other 5% was. Um, so <laughs> it was just a really good positive influence. And what also where I benefited from was, look, we were, we were very isolated, very remote, and we'd moved to the area. So my, um, I actually spent the first five years of my life, um, the only white child in a native village in Northern Canada, Pine House. It's a Creek community where my mom worked as a land use, as a community organizer and activist, basically helping the First Nations community um, you know, access government grants and other funding so they could build and provide for themselves. Um, and when I turned five, my mom was like, well, I want the schools aren't necessarily the best here. Let's move south to Prince Albert. Um, so moved down there and moved into an area where everybody else had like was I drove to Wilkinson or related to one. They were all like had lived in that area for generations <laughs> that near the new blood. And the community just really rallied and accepted us, looked after um, my mom passed away when I was in college, two of my friend's moms came to graduation, so I wouldn't be alone. So what I learned is right. Like, you know, there's a saying, if you want to go, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And the, like a lot of community support, a lot of different organizations, a lot of different people helped me along the way. So like any success I've had or any opportunity I've had has been because other people supported me. I think learning to be grateful for that and to acknowledge it. And I think if you pay that forward, people also will want to help you later. And I don't know. I think I, again, rambled off and wandered down a path and I'm not sure if I addressed your question. No, no, no. That, that's, I, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, even, you know, my, my level of impressed with, uh, you know, what you've achieved is it grows. Um, but that's, thanks for sharing. I mean, just, uh, yeah, really, really neat, uh, personal story and, um, yeah, I mean, and, and I cut you off before, I mean, so pick up kind of, so what, what happened after college, you know, where, uh, what did you, where'd you, where'd you go? How'd you end up kind of, uh, now as an investor? Uh, yeah. So, um, look, like I said, grew up with the, you know, grew up with the single mom on welfare, um, had a lot of people do a lot of stuff for us. So I was committed to giving back. And the way I thought initially I was going to do that was working in nonprofits. So, um, just always mission has been always very important to me. So 
after grad school, I took my first job working with a nonprofit doing working in sub-Saharan Africa, helping farmer, smallholder farmers access tools and equipment so they could basically grow more food. And if they could grow more food make more money and lift themselves out of poverty, kickstart international, great organization, incredible founder, Martin Fisher, man deserves a Nobel prize at some point. Um, really. So worked there for a period of time. Ended up working, then leaving, going to work at Bridgespan, which is a consulting firm that only works with nonprofit clients. And in the span of that, um, a friend of mine had started a nonprofit um, that was trying to, this is going to be a little different, um, so bear with me. Have you ever heard of poop transplants or FMTs? Um, I have. Yeah, yeah. We are um, actually, I would say we're in the business of such things, but we... Um, we, we have been um, well briefed on uh, the Los Alamos National Lab, which is obviously famous for the Manhattan Project. Uh, now does that type of work. So we, we are, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, go on. So for people who aren't aware, um, one of the most commonly acquired infections in U.S. hospitals is the thing called C. difficile. It's a bacterial infection that you normally get after receiving surgery and taking antibiotics to both avoid post-operative infection. Half a million Americans get it every year and it kills about 30,000. And basically what it is is take these antibiotics, they knock out all the bacteria in your gut. Um, and then C. difficile is like this bacteria that's living in the hospital. It sees this clear cut force that is your gut moves in, overgrows, proliferates, and makes you very sick. And the way we normally try and treat it is we give you more back, we give you more antibiotics. Well, those antibiotics don't always work. Um, but it turns out if you can get good bacteria into the gut, it can outcompete that bad bacteria. Now, the way you get that good bacteria is what's sometimes referred to as an FMT, fecal matter transplant, um, or a poop transplant if you want to be colloquial or casual with it. Because basically when you have a bowel movement, um, you're not only getting rid of food, you actually lose a lot of the, you shed a lot of bacteria that in your back, in your gut. So we would basically have people have a poop. Um, I'm just going to use, yeah, use grab it, collect their poop, process it, turn it into this um, and like store it. And then when a person would get sick, a doctor would call us, we'd ship them this FMT, this poop transplant, and they would, you know, either the doctor would provide a colonoscopy or put it through a nasal gastro tube to get it back into the patient's stomach and it'd outcompete the bad bacteria. So basically, we started a nonprofit doing that because there is, as I said, half a million Americans getting sick with C. difficile, killing 30,000 a year. And we had this known solution, but there's only like nine doctors in all of the United States doing this because. They couldn't get paid for it. There's no easy way to get access to this treatment. So basically, um, we're like, wait, so there's this huge problem and there's this known solution, but there's a, this impl implementation gap because nobody can get access to FMT because doctors don't want to like collect the poop, process themselves, you know, put it in a blender, pour it through a strainer. Like they're not going to do any of that, right? They're just yeah. going to need antibiotics. So we're like, if we can almost do what the right cross does for blood, but do that for stool, we can help a lot of people, right? So we started a nonprofit. My buddy, Mark Smith, incredible man, um, him and another great friend of mine, James Bridges, started this nonprofit called Open Biome that is basically the world's first poop transplant bank. And they went and were talking to me and like, Josh, you work at a consulting firm that tries to help nonprofits grow. We're a nonprofit trying to grow. Do you want to come work with us? It's like, you guys are great. What you're doing is cool. Yeah, let's go for it. So got involved in that. Um, uh, so I started working. So the, like, I'm just curious, like, is that, is it regulated? Like where can, can, is it, was that a hard kind of, did they have to get over a lot of hurdles to be able to be in that market? Then spot on question. That's the question, right? So 
it was such a new field of medicine that when we started doing this back, open biome back in like 2013, there wasn't any regulations. And the FDA very quickly got freaked out, right? They're like, whoa, 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 what is happening here? Um, this sounds pretty scary, understandable. Um, so they wanted to regulate it. And we argued, you should regulate this like you regulate tissue, right? Um, or you regulate blood. Make sure the patient is the make sure the host is healthy or the donor is healthy. And then, you know, if the donor is healthy, test the samples, make sure they're healthy. And as long as they're clear, allow us to do it. The FDA said, hey, said no, we're not going to regulate this as a blood or a tissue. We want you to go the full pharmaceutical drug route, like phase one, phase two, three clinical wow. trials, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars, takes a decade route. Um, and there, so that was going to shut down open biome. There's this huge outcry from the community, right? All the providers and everybody like, look, FDA, there's some logic there. We can understand it. But if you do that, thousands of people are going to die. So the FDA very, you know, decided to walk a middle ground where they were going to allow open biome to exist under something called enforcement discretion, where they're like, hey, we're going to allow you to operate, but we want somebody to go and get this approved. And once they go and get it approved, like through the clinical trial route, we're going to remove enforcement discretion. Sure. So what that meant is we then spent on a for-profit called Finch Therapeutics because a nonprofit wasn't going to be able to access the hundreds of the millions of dollars necessary to take this to from you know, clinic to commercialization. Um, so we spun out a for-profit called Finch and then raised, you know, that's ended up working there, grew that from 10 to 200 people or raised several hundred million dollars around the way, along the way, had an IPO in March of 2021 on the NASDAQ to pursue getting a FDA certification for, um, open for FMT. Mark. Wow. Okay. That's, that's a, I don't think I realized the full breadth of that story. That's, that's, that's amazing. Um, what was that like in terms of VV going from, yes, yeah, I was kind of, kind of interested in, in why that product would fit in a, in a nonprofit. It sounds like they're, yeah, they became a for-profit. What was that? What was that growth like? Cause even I imagine going, you know, that, that amount of growth, probably new facilities, new infrastructure required. What, what did you learn as kind of a, an operator and a manager going through that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I learned it's really hard to build a business. <laughs> um, and it's very difficult to do one in a space that is heavily regulated. And I'm a person who believes government is important, but the number of times I'd be like, gosh, darn government regulation, getting in me the way of getting things done. Uh, not that I'm blaming, you know, um, and the FDA, we're good thought partners and we're actually really excellent to work with. Like it's a very impressive organization. Um, but look, you learn that it's hard to raise capital. It's hard to take care of the 101 things that you need to run a business. Like what's your insurance policy? What about real estate? What about the, you know, paying the path, like keeping the lights on it, hiring people, building a culture that, you know, will keep people motivated and wanting to stay and excited to grow the company. Um, snacks so because people care about it that's gonna make a joke yeah you got to keep the fridge you know stocked with the good stuff yeah no, I was it. absolutely um and like you know and also like i ended up right like i am not i was not the scientist we had a lot of great scientists doing a lot of good scientific work i i said like i did everything around the everything in the background is like my job is to you know get stuff done to build systems and then hiring people who know what they're doing it's like oh hey we need to figure out our legal systems. Okay, I will 
help set up our contracting process and work through that. And then eventually we're going to hire a lawyer who really knows what they're doing and they're going to come in and look at what I did and hopefully go, oh, that's cute. I can work with that. And, you know, if they said that, great, mission accomplished. Um, but like do that. And if they looked and went, oh man, I'm going to spend six months having to undo everything you did. It was like, well, I messed that one up. But like, so just learn that there's so many different elements and components that you need to build a successful business. Not only is it the science, but it's the people and it's all the infrastructure that they need. And then it's the funding to keep all of that going, right? There's so many different things that you have to keep an eye on, keep pushing forward and together if you want to succeed, right? Like science is, you need science to succeed. If you don't have science, you're not going to have a company in this space, but you also need operations because if you don't have that, right? Great science, but no operations, you won't get ahead as well. So you have to like, as an investor, it's been really helpful having that experience because I think it, you know, hopefully allows us to identify companies that we think have the right blend of great science and great operations that will allow them to succeed. Then also hopefully provide that support or help um, when we are working with our portfolio companies to make that they, you know, they do have something they can turn to who maybe having not been in that exact circumstance that you're in has been in something similar. So it can be an aid or a, you know, source of information. Well, it's a, yeah, I'm really, it's, a, it's such an interesting point. So you, I always joke, like if, if I was going to take, if I had to pick one word, to, you know, in, in, to take to a desert island, you know, uh, and, and have that be relevant to startups, it would, it would be hiring, right? I mean, it's, it's literally um, over time you kind of see, and we see with our portfolio companies, it's just 101% about the people, right? When the people are right and, and the, the team is in place, life is easy, business grows almost, you know, naturally um, when it's, it's not, you know, it's the exact opposite of that, of that spectrum. So, um, what have you kind of learned about just even when you look at a founding team, like what are the traits, you know, of, of people that, that make it, you know, is it, is it grid? Is it, uh, uh, comfort operating in ambiguity? Is it, is it resilience? I mean, what do you think? Uh, it, it's all of the above, right. Um, and it's also, it's passion, it's humility. Um, you know, it's curiosity, it's empathy, right? I think, Look, I view when I look at a founding team, right, and especially like when we're talking with early CEOs, a lot of times there's, there's two things that I'm really looking for, right? One is a clear vision of what they are hoping to achieve, where they want the company to go, right? And then the second is the ability to clearly and convincingly articulate that in a way that is inspirational to those around them, right? A great leader is somebody who can say, we are going to go there. We're going to climb that mountain. And then they turn to everybody else and they go, and we're going to do it. And it's going to be great. And everybody looks at like, yeah, let's go for it. This is going to be fun. Right. Um, so having somebody who has that vision, but also that charisma or empathy to get people motivated and to understand them so that they can help inspire them to go and accomplish that. Right. I, I think it's incredibly important. Right. I think great leaders, especially at early stage startups, need to have very strong empathy skills because your teams are so small situations are so difficult you're going to encounter hard times and if you can't understand your employees and your teammates and what they're going through and what they need you're not going to be able to motivate them and you're going to lose them and especially when you're a small company churn is a killer right you know if you're 10 people and one person leaves you just lost 10% of your company, right? That's a big problem, right? 
And if it's an early employee, you might be losing, you know, 98% of your intellectual capital. I mean, it's, it's, it's on, it's unevenly distributed, right? <laughs> totally. It's one of the, you know, one of the things whenever I'm evaluating a company is I always ask for over the last 12 months, I go, how big is your company over the last 12 months? How many people have you lost and how many people have you hired? Right? Because the science and technology could be great, but if there's this crazy high churn going on in the background, something's wrong because People don't leave good companies unless there's a really good reason. And that reason is normally, right? Like you come for the job, you leave because of the boss. So, right. That's one of those things. Like I really want to understand how does the founding team work with the rest of the individuals? Yeah, it's a great point. And the game, obviously, I'm sure you guys saw with your portfolio companies, it's, it's, it's harder, you know, than it used to be, I think in terms of growing a team, especially, you know, and we, and we, we kind of always bounce around on like the, in-person versus virtual workforce, right? When you're kind of growing that culture element, you know, we, we kind of in, typically lean towards like in-person's a easier way to do that, but there's obviously, you know, good arguments the other way uh, too. But um, transitioning a little bit, I wonder just to sort of finish on a lot of the folks listening are, are uh, building companies, you know, or thinking about it or, or work with entrepreneurs in different ways. Uh, and there's kind of this, this mythology around, you know, pitching a, a VC, right. And if you kind of go, you know, look online, you'll get 75 different things you should do, you know, when you go and actually meet somebody like yourself. And I don't think many of them are even, even right. But what would you say? I mean, what's important when you get pitch, how do you like to have interactions with companies, you know, that, that are not in your portfolio? What's that look like? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, Look, I, I remember having to raise our, like, you know, our first series A, where we were going to go out to outside investors, um, and the you know, Mark, the CEO going like, Hey, Josh, okay. Um, we're going to do this. I think we need a data room. And I go like, well, what's, what do we put in the data room? It's like, I don't know. You got to go figure it out. Right. <laughs> like, um, and like, I just say that to share, like, I've been on that side where it can be so intimidating to talk to venture capital, right. Um, and there's this, there's these weird power dynamics and imbalances. Um, and you know, the industry does a bad job of necessarily making itself accessible. Um, but what can I recommend to somebody who's going to go and pitch, pitch to a VC? One is look, really believe in what you're doing. Right. Cause if you're not, if you don't believe in it and you're not excited about it, like that's just so immediately obvious. And if you can't care about it how am I going to care about it? Right. That's kind of self-evident, but I just wanted to stress it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Maybe a more like tactical thing is, you know, just remember the acronym, like kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Right. Like, especially for your first time when you're talking to somebody, have a really clear narrative arc and message. Right. There will be, there will be time later to get into the nitty gritty details to really drill down. But when you're first having that first conversation, I talk to many, many companies every day, right? I, I'm not, I'm maybe not an expert in, I'm probably most definitely not an expert in your field. So I need you to be able to explain this, like you're talking to a two-year-old or, right? or a second grader, right? Um, Cause like, you know, founder, they're normally, they've been working on something for years. They're super passionate. They want to share all the information. They want to share all the details. And 
I need to stay at the 30,000 foot level for the first presentation so I can get an idea of what's going on. And then later, bring me down to the weeds. Like, I will ask to get into the, the nitty gritty three inch level. But at that first conversation, high, clear, high level story of, you know, what's the problem that you're trying to solve? Why you have a great solution? Why you think that solution can make money? Why you can do it at scale? And why you have the team to get it done? Right? And it's probably, I mean, it's, it's kind of a signal of, of coachability and, and how the founder is going to be to work with too, right? If they're able to to quickly explain that and, and, and have a relation, you know, okay, we're, we're getting out of the science, at least for the purpose of, of talking to the money people. Um, to me, that's a, a signal that's positive. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, right. What was, when you asked like, what does a CEO need? I was like, they need vision, they need the ability to clearly communicate. Right. Um, and one of those groups that they need to be able to clearly communicate to is VCs. Cause unfortunately when you're building a hard tech company, you're going to be raising money a lot of times, right? That you're in, it's not going to be one round and done It's you're going to raise a slug of money. And 12 months later, you're probably going to have to go and do it again. And you're going to have to do that over and over. And it's exhausting. And if you're not good at raising capital, you, even if you've got a great technology, like, well, the company's probably going to have some real difficulties. Good advice. Yep. Good to good advice. So we'll leave it there. Thank you, Josh. Um, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Inspired by your story. Thanks for spending a little bit of time with us and, um, yeah, don't be a stranger. I know you're a DC guy, so please, uh, let's, let's, uh, get together soon. Now, thank you, Ben. And I've also like really impressed by you and FedTech and what you're doing and helping grow, you know, America's innovative ecosystem and economy. So thanks for, you know, helping push it forward without innovation. We're not going to compete in the future. Yeah, I know we are. We're, we're all in it together, man. So, all right, we'll talk soon. Okay. Take care.